Uh, hi, this is Steve, citizen of Earth. And this is Matt Bird, citizen of the Soviet Union. <laughs> and this is Marvel Reread Club. I don't know where that came from. Yeah, uh, neither do I. Uh, the funny thing is, I, out of the two of us, I'm the only one who ever visited the Soviet Union. That is true. <laughs> uh, for the listeners out there, I was on a student exchange program in 1988 during the few years when they were open enough to do such a thing and before they ceased to exist. So, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, I threw Matt a, a curveball there. So um, I'm glad you were able to hit it with something. Yeah, I, I did the best I could. So usually we record both halves of the month in the same sitting. This time we had to break it up because uh, Steve had to run and pick up his car from the shop. <laughs> it is now a snow day. My kids are home uh, ah. from school. Ever since they invented remote learning, they've gotten much quicker on the draw with snow days. So there's no way kids would have stayed home on a day like this four years ago because it's only three inches of snow. But the kids are getting much less value than they would have gotten if they had gone to school. So I wish they had gone to school. <laughs> Old man yells at cloud, like yes. snow cloud in particular. Okay, so yeah, getting back into this, May of 1966, the landmark Fantastic Four number 50, the startling saga of the Silver Surfer. It's a little bit odd because we, he's been introduced in previous issues and we're already sort of in the middle of his saga. Yes. And then there's there's an inset in the bottom right that says, at last, the Human Torch in college. Uh, and you had talked about that a little bit in the previous episode. about yeah, how The same they month, they bragged that Spider-Man's in college and that Human Torch is in college. They're definitely uh, huh? aiming for college students. Well, I mean, I, I'm guessing they knew that they were getting a lot of letters from college students. So they're like, hey, let's just go ahead and try to pander. <laughs> I mean, Stan Lee was not above pandering to anybody for any reason. So. But I'm sure people saw this cover and they're like, uh, weren't we in the middle of a huge storyline with Silver Surfer and Galactus? We're, we're going to take time off to see Johnny in college. And they were probably a little baffled by this cover. And who boy, would they be even more baffled by the inside? Yeah, it's uh, as we were talking about uh, in previous episodes, they were in this period at this moment of ending storylines mid-issue and picking up new storylines in the middle of that same issue, uh, or at least in the Kirby books, we were doing that. And uh, that has happened again here uh, in that we are going to wrap up the Galactus storyline just over halfway through this issue and then move on to other stuff, which, uh, yeah, is a bit odd yes it's uh, going to suddenly become an archie comic uh halfway through this issue <laughs> and it is uh, it, just bizarre the startling saga of the silver surfer uh in last issue as we probably all remember galactus had shown up he's ready to gobble up the earth he has his machinery attached coincidentally to the top of the baxter building we and should say, at least in the original versions galactus has suddenly put on pants he yes. suddenly realized, I've got all these humans that are knee-high to me, and they're looking straight up my miniskirt, and this is getting embarrassing. <laughs> I should go ahead and put on some pants. So he went ahead and went into his ship, and he found some pants, and uh, luckily they were not too old and wrinkly, and he put them on. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, also, he's he's purple and kind of a reddish brown here. Is that what he yes. is for you as well? Yes. And then with his sh- with his short sleeve uh, shirt, he has a little like uh, tab kind of that comes down his tricep uh, yeah. as well. Okay, yeah. Galactus was here to eat the Earth. The Silver Surfer had encountered Alicia by coincidence, and she had started to awaken him to the idea of humanity as something that is worth saving. And so he has decided to try to persuade Galactus not to eat the Earth. Uh, And at first, he just tries persuasion. He's trying, and after about a page, he gives up and says, oh, you know what? Uh, I have what we are eventually going to end up calling the power cosmic as well. I don't believe they've quite finalized on that uh, phrasing yet. Uh, But I can then use that against you and try to keep you from eating the earth. Uh, On the bottom of page two, I think this is the apotheosis we have finally reached full kirby crackle at this yes. point we've been approaching it over the last four months or so but i i'm gonna declare this panel full-on kirby crackle yes the silver surfer says well i can't bring myself to kill my you know master uh but i won't let him do this so he surrounds him in an energy field that then solidifies uh and he hopes that will do it of course it does not Silver Surfer should have known better. <laughs> um, so they he then gets into an actual, uh, you know, cosmic power fight with Galactus. Meanwhile, previously, we had seen that uh, Human Torch had been sent by the Watcher unimaginably far away to go to Galactus's home, raid his home for some stuff, and come back with a gigaw that he is... Wait, is that is that <laughs> that's not the word I usually use? <laughs> a, I don't know. A, fr- uh, a thingamajig, a, a doohickey, a thingamajig, a canooter valve uh, <laughs> <laughs> that uh, is supposedly going to allow them to vanquish Galactus. And I find it odd that they never show him inside Galactus's ship. They just show him outside, and then later they show him out. Then they show him coming back with the thing, although he doesn't have it in his hand, oddly enough. But they never actually, we never get to see the inside of Galactus's ship. It'll be several years before other artists show us that. Actually, one thing I hadn't noticed until you pointed out that he didn't have it in his hand, on page seven, panel two, Reed is reaching into his pants. In- <laughs> yeah. To pull it out. <laughs> Which, let's not think about that for too long. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it gives me the creeps. Anyway, the battle between Silver Surfer and Galactus is continuing uh, with commentary from the Watcher. And then uh, Reed Richards shows up with what they have now described as the ultimate nullifier, which is what uh, Johnny brought back from his ship. And it is essentially a doomsday weapon, a uh, mutually assured destruction ploy on the part of Reed here, saying, if, well, if you're going to kill everyone on Earth anyway, I may as well detonate this, and then we will die, but you will die too. Uh, and this works, and uh, Galactus uh, vows never to try to eat the Earth again. Of course, that's not what happens. <laughs> but then he condemns the Silver Surfer to no longer be able to go out into space. He is now trapped on Earth. Basically, yeah, you like these human beings so much? Well, guess what? (laughs) Now you're stuck with them. So Um, many classic panels in this issue. Almost every panel 
is a classic. Certainly him extending the ultimate nullifier into Galactus's face is a classic panel, but uh, yeah. very much the panel where Galactus shoots his eye beams through the Silver Surfer. Henceforth, the Silver Surfer shall roam the galaxies no more. Every origin flashback of the Silver Surfer has a version of that panel, and it's a great panel. Let me say that last issue ended with the Watcher going like, well, I've sent Johnny Storm across the universe to get something to defeat Galactus, and now the Silver Surfer also wants to defeat Galactus. This is bad to have two different ways to defeat Galactus. They're going to cancel each other out, and nothing's going to work. And I remember thinking at the time, like, I think these two are mutually compatible plans. I think that uh, they'll work together well. <laughs> You're being a little bit of a negative Nelly here, Watcher. <laughs> and indeed, it, they work perfectly well together. You know, the Silver Surfer distracts Galactus while Reed works up the ultimate nullifier plan. I thought one very overrated movie of the last 20 years was Inglorious Bastards. And Inglorious mm-hmm. Bastards, they spend a lot of that movie worrying that their two different plans to defeat Hitler will cancel each other out. And I'm like, going, that's not good storytelling when the heroes have two different plans that are going to cancel each other out that's we want something a little more linear than that but anyway uh yeah and the uh ultimate nullifier panel that you were talking about once again i often talk about the legendary card game uh that is uh reed's rare card an homage to that yes and galactus's eye beams shooting through the silver surfer to supposedly remove his ability to fly out into space uh prefigures in my mind uh dark sides what, what are his eye beams called <laughs> omega something omega vision omega yeah. beams omega something some, i don't remember some kind of an, some kind of anti-life beams uh but it very much uh, seems to prefigure that and yeah i mean page 10 both of those panels look like classics to me yeah Anyway, so Galactus leaves, and we're only on page 11. Yes. The Silver Surfer is talking to them and, you know, talking about the battle and what the repercussions are going to be. And then up comes Alicia. She makes it to the top of the Baxter building, comes running over to where the thing is talking to Silver Surfer, and she walks right by Ben, who is actually holding out his arms for a hug, and she goes right to Silver Surfer and actually puts her hands on his bare chest. But, you know, she had had this this uh, connection with him, uh, you know, obviously a non-sexual, non-romantic connection, but still, you know, this very close connection, and she wanted to talk to him in the way of this well ben does not take this well and he doesn't build up anger about it it is severe depression i mean clearly he is unbelievably depressed at this point and we've seen this building ever since at least the beginning of the frightful four storyline yeah he has been getting more and more fed up with his situation and how he's treated in the group. I should point out that Alicia does eventually end up going out with Silver Surfer in the 90s. Um, <laughs> really? That, yeah, once. Uh, ben had moved on for quite some time uh, at the time, and Alicia was free and easy, and the Silver Surfer was free and easy, and uh, they ended up having a relationship for about uh, 15 issues or so at some point. Uh, there were some pretty good comics. I think uh, Ron Garney was the artist on those. As I said before, Silver Surfer is the only character where I went back and I read all 60 years worth of his stories. There were a lot of really great, shockingly good 90s comics with the Silver Surfer, and those were some of them. Now, was that the version of Alicia they later retconned to have been a scroll? No, this was human Alicia. This was uh, after human Alicia had been returned to the planet Earth 
Um, ah. But I think she and and didn't get back together when she returned to the planet Earth, and she was just a supporting character who was not being used. She was no longer a Fantastic Four supporting character, so the Silver Surfer comic decided to pick up on that. So in the 90s miniseries uh, Marvels, which uh, introduced the world for the most part to Alex Ross and is a fantastic work that, um, you know... <laughs> does in four issues kind of what we're trying to do here, giving you a kind of overview of these things in time. In there, they have a sequence where right after uh, Galactus leaves, the world suddenly turns against the Fantastic Four, rather than hailing them as heroes who have just saved the entire planet and all life on Earth. You have the Daily Bugle calling this whole thing a hoax, uh, and it's immediate. It's like literally within a couple of pages of, uh, of Galactus leaving, which I had not realized. I had assumed in the telescoped version of the Marvel Universe that we got in Marvels that that would have been something from the next couple of issues or something like that. But no, it is it is immediate. <laughs> it is yes. right there. We then get a little preview of uh, the villain from the next issue. We know nothing about him right now, except he's a rather weird looking dude. You know, I got to say that people I think think of after all these bizarre storylines that begin or end halfway through an issue, people think of the next issue, issue 51, this man, this monster. It's funny because when you think of classic Fantastic Four, you know, the obviously the Galactic storyline in 48, 49, and 50 is classic. Obviously, the introduction of Black Panther in 52 and 53 is classic. But fan, for amongst real Fantastic Four heads, Fantastic Four 51 is almost as classic as the things that surround it. It's, we're going to get to it next episode or two episodes from now. It is a truly great issue with this man, this monster. But I feel like it's remembered as being one of the all-time great single-issue stories of all time. And... But it's funny, it's not actually a single issue storyline, because it's set up here in number 50. We just, very briefly, it is set up here. Um, so it is not a completely self-contained story, as it turns out. I still consider that a self-contained story. I mean, oh, half yeah. a page of this one dude, we have no idea who he is, <laughs> you know, uh, talking about his plans, uh, or sort of vaguely hinting at his plans, I don't think counts. All right, so we move on to page 15, where we suddenly see a college football team practicing, and apparently they're... Uh, swell-headed uh, quarterback is too good to actually go and bother with practices. He's like, the team sucks other than me. You know, as long as I show up on game day, you know, you have a chance of winning. Other than that, whatever, what are you going to do? Kick me off the team? Then you'll always suck. So he's pretty bad. We also see a Volkswagen Beetle on page 15, yeah. which in, you know, Jack Kirby often has people and things seeming to be stuck in the somewhere between the 30s and the 50s. So this actually does jump out at me as we are saying that we're moving into current times. We are being right now. Yeah. All right. So uh, this coach is uh, saying that, you know, he's he doesn't want to go out uh, as a as a has been. And if only he had a really great quarterback who was determined, then he could do something. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. I can't say what a record scratch this is. Just after the Galactic <laughs> storyline to be, you know, we're supposed to like, yeah, there's this real sense of fear. Like, are we supposed to be invested in whether or not this coach is a has-been or not? This coach we've never met before in a college we've never been to before. It's like, is this, am I supposed to care about this? Like, whoa, like Galactus was just dispatched, dude. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it, it really is. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it really would seem to make sense for them to have broken these two uh, stories up at an issue break. That would come across a lot better. Um, well, I don't know about a lot better. I kind of like how it works here. But yeah, it's definitely, as you say, a record scratch moment. Johnny shows up at college and uh, they call it Metro College, which I presume is supposed to be City University of New York. But I don't know that for a fact, <clears throat> although they do say in the text that it's outside of Manhattan. So uh, I don't know what we're supposed to take from that. Yeah, I don't know what it would be. Anyway, he shows up in the halls uh, looking for the college president. Apparently, he's supposed to go talk to him, I guess, because he's a big VIP and ends up bumping into a big old hulking dude uh, wearing a green suit, maybe uh, a full head taller than Johnny. And uh, they really hit it off right at the beginning. And this is Wyatt Wingfoot, who will be an ongoing character, whom I have always liked, yeah. largely because he was in a romantic and sexual relationship years later with She-Hulk, and I had a huge crush on She-Hulk. <laughs> so I'm like, you go, Wyatt. You never dreamed you would one day get to see She-Hulk twerk with Megan Thee Stallion when you were <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> we 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 live in uh, in awesome times. So the president of the college also wanted to talk to Wyatt for a couple of reasons. One is that he wanted to talk to Johnny because you know, hey, you're a celebrity, you've got these superpowers, you've done all this other stuff. It's going to be an interesting transition for you, and I just want to talk to you about it. And meanwhile, Wyatt is a big athletic star, and he wants to talk to him about what he's going to be doing while he's here. They also mention that Wyatt Wingfoot came from, quote, the Indian Mission School outside of Tulsa, mm. and uh, which I presume is the same basic sort of thing as the Indian residential schools that we've been hearing about in Canada recently. And that sort of puts that statement in a whole different light <laughs> at this point. Yes. Sure, at the time, it was just taken as, oh, yeah, well, this is a place where we're, you know, educating, um, you know, fine young American Indian men to, you know, uh, uh, come and be part of society. And here it is. It's successful. Here's Wyatt Wingfoot. And uh, I do wonder if yet any modern comics writers have gone back and taken this particular statement and gone back uh, now with the current uh, understanding and re-evaluated that. Yes. So anyway, at the end, uh, Johnny and Wyatt walk off and they are uh, going to be college roommates, which is pretty cool, although it will eventually just sort of drop off. They'll just sort of forget that he was in college eventually. But uh, Wyatt will stick around as a supporting character who will appear and disappear from time to time. Yes. So we're that's uh, it. Uh, so a couple other things, you know. Last issue, they said, oh, Galactus has never eaten a world with life on it before. He's only eaten lifeless worlds before this. And at the end of this issue, they're like, Galactus, you can't eat Earth. You have to leave. But it's like, why don't they say, okay, you could eat Mars. Like, you could eat, <laughs> you could eat Venus. You could eat Mercury. Any place that, uh, that's not so gaseous, it wouldn't withhold your equipment. Uh, you can go eat those because they're lifeless worlds. And we've established that you can eat lifeless worlds. Only later would it be established that Galactus cannot eat lifeless worlds. It always bugged me as a kid whenever Galactus would almost eat the Earth. I'm like, why not have him eat Mars? But uh, <laughs> it is later established that he can only eat uh, planets with life on them. Yes, although, I mean, I'm sure he could find planets without sentient life, you know. Where, yeah, where, I think, yeah, that's the implication. I think that now, sort of in the retcon, that's uh, the implication is that he was eating 
planets uh, with just plant life on them or something like that. Yeah. It's interesting that Johnny goes to a different college than Peter. Yeah. Peter Parker goes to ESU, Empire State University, which seems like it's supposed to be NYU. And Johnny is going to Metro College outside of Manhattan. You would think maybe you'd want to have them in the same school so that you could have more guest starring opportunities. But I think that, uh, you know, they went to different high schools too. I think that Lee likes keeping them apart. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I, I think he likes not having, you know, that he did a lot of interaction with them early on and the two of them really irritating each other. I'm wondering if he was just kind of tired of that at this point. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't want to put myself in a situation where I'm stuck with that. Going back to uh, my notes, I see a couple of different things that I missed. Uh, last panel on page four, the Silver Surfer refers to what Galactus is shooting at him as blasts of solar destructogen, which uh, I like. <laughs> okay, I put that in my um, notes. And then also on the large panel of Galactus, where he is, uh, you know, has a lot of Kirby crackle around him, I do notice that the caption says something about Galactus is transformed, a living, raging fury of pure power as the very atoms in the air seem to crackle in elemental disarray. Uh, so I find it interesting that the word crackle is actually used right here in the, you know, what I consider the moment when um, Kirby crackle really begins to exist. Uh, last panel on page 11, when Silver Surfer and Thing are talking right before Alicia shows up, <laughs> Thing is uh, yelling at the Silver Surfer and he says, what is really troubling you, my friend? Thing says, quit talking so blasted nice. Can't you see I'm trying to dislike you? Which, <laughs> which I find great. Uh, and then uh, when Johnny is showing up at Metro College, he's showing up in a sports car. So, okay, he drives sports cars. He's We've, you know, determined that he's a gearhead or whatever you would call somebody who, you know, grease monkey. Uh, I don't know what you call him. But uh, but then he's thinking to himself, it was nice of Dory Evans to lend me her car while my stingray is being fixed after that fight with Dragon Man, which is a really weird thing for Stan to feel that he has to insert in there. You know, this does not look like a car Dory Evans would own. Uh, no. And we have we have not seen Dory Evans in months and will not see her again in the time that Kirby is on this book. Yeah, well, then he thinks in his next stop, probably thinks, funny how I'm still friends with Dory, but the old feeling's gone ever since I met Crystal. Crystal, I've got to stop thinking of her. So I had totally missed that, that he uh, he thinks about Dory there. And yeah, we've established that Dory's dad is rich. So, you know, she could conceivably have a sports car, but it's an odd uh, insertion here. Like, it would have been totally believable if this was just Johnny's car. Yeah, or just another car that he has. I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, he picks cars up at the junkyard and fixes them up. You know, why not? Uh, all right. So um, do you have anything else to say about this historic and one might say monumentous issue that we have before us? No, I do not. OK, well, then well, I'm going to pass it back to you for Strange Tales. All right. Let's go ahead and do Strange Tales number 144. Doctor Strange does not get a logo on the cover. It does mention him. It says, if you think Doctor Strange is the only mystic in this mag, wait till you see the Day of the Druid. And we see that Nick Fury and Dum Dum Dugan are going to be attacked by an egg, which is egged on by a guy in crazy headgear. So that is what's going to be on the inside of the book. And indeed, let's go ahead and get to that. Let's go ahead and begin. Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Supreme Headquarters, International Espionage Law Enforcement Division, the Day of the Druid, Stanley writer, Jack Kirby, designer, H. Purcell, Howard Purcell, penciler, 
M. DeMeo, Mickey DeMeo, Inker, who is actually Mike Esposito, Sam Rosen, Letterer. So last issue, we sort of had halfway through the issue, Howard Purcell taking over from Jack Kirby on the art. And this issue, we have Kirby credited just as designer and mainly Purcell. You know, I think there's elements of Kirby in this issue. I would say that the Druid's headgear is clearly something (laughs) that Kirby designed, but would have executed much better if he had actually done the pencils himself. And I hate it. I even though it's <laughs> I usually love Kirby headgear. I really hate the Druids headgear. I think Purcell okay. uh as it got translated from Kirby to Purcell, it really looks it looks like it's mainly for TV reception. I was about to say, now that you're talking about that, it looks like specifically a UHF antenna. <laughs> yes. Like you know, the VHF usually you'd use the bunny ears, but for better UHF you would have the little loop and sometimes there would be a little bow tie looking thing that would be attached to it if you had a particularly fancy one. <laughs> and yes. There we go. And then bullhorns. Bullhorns and a UHF antenna. I'm not a fan of it at all. Do not like it. So then we see the druid who is sort of a mystic guy and sort of a sci-fi guy. I'm never crazy about characters who are like halfway between mystic and sci-fi. Might I point out to you the existence of Dr. Doom? Yes, that's true. I like Dr. Doom. But so then, well, but the, the druid here, uh, I think they make it clear that he is a sci-fi guy who just um, uses his stuff to make it seem like it's magic just to throw people off in what he's doing. That was my understanding. Mean, it says, for the first time in modern history, you were actually witnessing an eerie witch's Sabbath. So he has these eggs. The eggs are so strange. Like just attacking people with flying eggs is very bizarre. It's very egg- strange how the eggs travel upright, that, like, you know, they're not yeah. traveling aerodynamically in any way. They're, uh, that it's just, it's just a bizarre thing. We get, um, I think it was theory. supposed to, I think it was supposed to look weirder that way. Yeah, uh, but it, they- and it does. And when, when the first one appears here, uh, the druid says, hear the words of the druid, bring you forth the egg of Satan, which, uh, you know, seems a little over the top. So meanwhile, uh, Fury and Dum Dum are still do- dealing with the plane they were in that was crashed by an egg last issue. Fury has to go in in a protective suit and shut something off. And uh, we then get some panels that I saw you posted on Instagram of Dum Dum going like, Nick, buddy, if you're ever coming out, it's got to be now. One second. This is it. And it looks like he's having a massive fart. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know. If, I don't know if I, I just thought they were really silly out of context panels. But yes, a lot of people who commented online were talking about how it looked like he was super constipated. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then Nick and Tum Tum don't get away for long until another egg is chasing them. Uh, but this time they're in a special shield car, which can shoot out all sorts of stuff at it. But uh, the druid has all sorts of stuff, too. We now have him in his sci-fi lair underneath his twisted, gnarled uh, forest that he normally does his stuff in. So we always like to point out names of crazy Lee Kirby contraptions. Well, here on just one page, he has to choose between egg armament thermo ray multiple jet gun and traction nodules so he turns on the traction nodules which seems out of those four that really (laughs) does seem like the least impressive sounding one true so then the egg is throws down some traction nodules on the road tries to crash fury and dum-dum's car but it turns out that fury and dum-dum have crazy tony stark technology known as airbags 
experiences, the same kind of stuff the airlines are experiencing with now. They pop up at the push of the button to cushion the shock, and they are trying to drive uh, surrounded by airbags, which is not easy. And uh, but luckily, they're in a flying car. Then they finally blow up their egg, and then we cut to a brand new character being introduced, and it is a great character. This is the first introduction of Jasper Sitwell, who shows up at the S.H.I.E.L.D. barbershop and uh, is trying to prove his bona fides and uh, not getting anywhere with the barbershop haircutter, who is trying to be just a normal barber. And uh, Sitwell shows that he has all sorts of gadgets. He is explaining that he has just graduated from S.H.I.E.L.D. Academy, class of 66. We have never seen this academy before. There will later be a great... Uh, storyline with by DK Ch- Chester and uh, Jackson Geis, where we, uh, Hydra blows up the Academy um, that we will get to see in the late 80s or early 90s. But I love Jasper Sitwell. What do you think of Jasper Sitwell? Uh, when we were reading comics in the 80s, I never really... I, I never really remember noticing him and getting his character. I mean, I remember reading issues he was in, but, you know, I didn't really get that he was this sort of nerdy, somewhat irritating, but really good at his job, smart guy. Uh, but yeah. uh, now going back and looking at this, I generally like him, except that he keeps on saying, don't yield, back shield, which is just the dumbest motto I possibly ever heard i have heard two different things about the inspiration for him i had been told by someone a couple of years ago that he was supposedly a caricature of roy thomas who had just shown up although other folks say that he's uh patterned after a person in the dc offices whose job it was to keep track of superman continuity and that his name is actually his last name is close to sitwell i forget what it is Um, yes e nelson bridwell oh that's funny yeah, so I, I've heard both stories, and both of them seem like they could be plausible. Uh, I never thought of the Roy Thomas thing at the time because I've really only seen pictures of Roy Thomas after he got through into the seventies when he had kind of longish, uh, you know, somewhat longish hair. Uh, but I can imagine him showing up from Missouri with his crew cut and uh, being a very, you know, almost worshipful of these golden age guys who were here and really just wanting to, you know, being eager to please and trying to do all this stuff and being a little bit irritating, but in the end, quite good at what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so who knows where it comes from? But yes, he is a fun character. And unfortunately, they sort of threw that character. They didn't do anything good with his character in the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. They made him a very different character. Yeah, that's right. He was he was a villain. He uh, he betrayed yeah. S.H.I.E.L.D. to HYDRA. Um, and yeah, he was he- not nerdy at all. He, he, he was the one who was talking to uh, Cap in that elevator <laughs> right before yes. the the elevator thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, oh, what was the name of that actor? And then I'm like, oh, it's Amador, because that's the character he played on The Americans, right? He played uh, – <laughs> I don't remember him being in there, but okay. Yeah, he was the partner in the first season of The Americans that was killed. But yeah, I like him a lot. They – Lee likes him so much, he's going to have him do double duty and be a supporting character on two books at the same time, on both S.H.I.E.L.D. and Iron Man. He's going to eventually uh, become sort of a second banana to both Tony Stark and Nick Fury at the same time. It'll be strange. But I think he's just, he's got a lot of character. And I like characters with a lot of character. I think he's a lot of fun. 
And anyway, Nick Fury and Dum Dum eventually show up, a little dinged up, a little the worse for wear, and they get in their rubber chairs and sink into the ground and abandon Sitwell. So that is the end of the issue. Uh, except there's one very important detail you forgot to mention. What's that? Oh, no, is there a soupy sales reference? <laughs> yeah, last panel on page 11. All right, all right, knock it off. Is that all you creeps got to do? It's Colonel Fury. Who are you expecting? Soupy sales? Start talking in fast. So, uh, yes, the, the year of soupy sales continues. Yes. Okay, all right, let's move on to Doctor Strange. Now, I got to say that... I read these issues over the Christmas break when we were all together in Atlanta and then had to go back and take notes on them. And inevitably, when I read these Marvel comics and then I go back and take notes on them later, I'm like, what is this issue? I don't remember this issue at all. <laughs> well, often it'll be like a Submariner or something. But in this case, it was Dicko Doctor Strange. It's very rare that uh, Dicko Doctor Strange fall victim to that. But uh, this is a very unmemorable issue. One of the few unmemorable Dicko Doctor Strange stories that he ever did. But this is just an entirely generic issue that does not move the plot forward at all. It's got a lot of great art in it. I really like this first page where we have Doctor Strange sort of seemingly standing in a bitterly cold dimension, clutching his cloak of levitation around him as it sort of whips around his feet. And he is uh, remembering when Dormammu sent Clea off into some other dimension to be tortured or to have bad stuff happen to her. Then we see Dormammu in modern times meeting with a sort of floating mask type thing. It is I, my word, Asti the All-Seeing. Who is neat looking. I, I really like the look of him. He's got like sort of a bird beak and eyes and then just pretty much that's it. <laughs> yeah. it's it's real once again just you know even for as you say a not that memorable issue steve ditko is still bringing some super weird trippy stuff to this thing oh yeah the the art in this issue was great i was shocked that i'd forgotten it but uh so then dr strange is meeting with ancient one they're strategizing as how to find clea this is a little bit of strange plotting where Dormammu has already talked to one of his lackeys about setting up a trap for Doctor Strange. Then he talks to another lackey who actually is going to be running the trap. I guess the other Asti is going to be luring the person into the trap. And then he's talking to Otaza, who is actually going to be setting the trap. Sure enough, Doctor Strange is lured into the trap, fights Otaza. Doctor Strange, as each issue goes on, is using his cloak in more and more clever ways. This time, Doctor Strange goes ahead and takes off the cloak and has it act as a shield that he can hide behind while he attacks this monster who is changing shape in all sorts of ways and attacking him. Sort of reminds me of a character that will be in Dreadstar Comics by Jim Starlin later. Of course, Jim Starlin's number one influence was Steve Dicko on Doctor Strange. But eventually, Doctor Strange is able to overcome the person, and then he confronts Taz in person. Once again, Taz is like, ooh, you're like my strangely realistic statues I have all around me. <laughs> it's like, yes, 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 you're turning people into stone. We're way ahead of you here. And uh, so then they go ahead and confront each other. It's really quite generic, sort of strikingly generic, uh, the confrontation between them to the extent where it did not stay in my mind. If this was the first time we saw this stuff, it would be absolutely amazing. But we've seen this just so many times, Doctor Strange in a Strange Dimension shooting color lights at somebody at a warlord who is turning them back at him. Eventually, Doctor Strange defeats him and frees all of his prisoners. He says, all of you are free to go now, and if the brash Taza ever chooses to be so inhospitable to strangers in the future, we too shall clash again. He then says, okay, I'm just gonna go back to my own dimension and keep looking for Clea on another day. 
an absolutely generic space filler issue that accomplishes nothing. But as I said, if this was the first ever issue like this, I would be at, my jaw would be on the floor. It's a gorgeous issue. The only reason I found this issue so forgettable is that it's just very similar to several stories that have been published before and not necessary and doesn't exceed them. Yeah, I, just looking at it, yes, the psychedelic trippy craziness uh, of these dimensions really is Ditko still running on all cylinders. But uh, yeah, story-wise, it uh, unfortunately doesn't live up to that part of the art. But yeah, if you go back through this, just all of the, the stuff is just amazing. Also, I love the little magical gesture that one of the bad guys makes on page seven. Uh, you know, it's just, he's like, I need not fear. This magical gesture has powers which will shield me from any ra such rash attacks. And Steve Ditko comes up with a really neat looking <laughs> thing, which I'm trying to I'm trying to reproduce with my hand right now. I have I have super flexible fingers, so I could I'm thinking I should be able to do that, and then it will shield me from such rash attacks. Yes, <laughs> uh, yeah, I will grant you that it, the story is relatively forgettable and not uh, particularly coherent either. There is some confusion as we're finding, but the interdimensional stuff I'm going to savor it while we still have it. Yes, yes, certainly we should because we are about to lose it. No, a perfectly fine issue. Yep. Okay, let's move on to Tales of Suspense. All right, Tales of Suspense featuring Iron Man and Captain America. Ultimo lives, and we see a giant blue creature being fired at by Asian soldiers, very much seeming to be echoed in Watchmen during the period when Dr. Manhattan is winning the Vietnam War for us. Yes. <laughs> and Ultimo has Iron Man in his hands. Inside the book, once again, Ultimo lives. When we last left off, Tony Stark as Tony Stark was confronting the Mandarin. Uh, oh, who has Vulcan ears? I had not noticed this the first time I went through. Look at his huh. ears on, pa on, the, on the splash page. Yeah. That's Is he part elf? I don't know. That's very strange. <laughs> I think they've already determined he's half English and half Chinese. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh <laughs> Anyway, um, the Mandarin is going to destroy Tony Stark uh, because I, f I forget the reason he was there as Tony Stark, honestly. But um, anyway, he is about to do that, and then he's going to unleash Ultimo on the world. Uh, on page two, panel two, I really like that face of the Mandarin. That yeah, was I like done. it a lot, too. I yeah, and it's, it's probably, it may be the least racist Asian face that we've seen. <laughs> we should explain that this is written by Stan Lee, penciled by oh, right. Adam Austin, who is really Gene Cohen, penciled, inked by Gary Michaels, who is really Jack Abel, and lettered by Sam Rosen. So we've got Cohen and Abel working together well to create a face yes. that looks more like a face I would expect to see in an EC comic than a Marvel comic. And uh, yeah, sorry for forgetting the credits. Uh, just in order of the way Matt said it, the jobs are done homerically, heroically, 
historically and hysterically. So we see a bunch of pages of the Mandarin doing stuff that is going to awaken Ultimo. He then does awaken Ultimo, still has Tony Stark there as a prisoner, seems to be toying with him in various ways while Stark is trying to find ways to get out of there and turn into Iron Man. I've been saying that as I've gotten older and more experienced with these things, Colin's weird panel border decisions have started to irritate me more. This issue, it feels much more deliberate. It feels like he really is accomplishing something in the storytelling and adding to what we're getting by having these, you know, diagonal lines and various other stuff in terms of his panel layouts. So um, I just wanted to acknowledge that, that, you know, it's been bothering me lately, but here I really like it. Yeah, I like this issue. Tony Stark is able to dive into the moat where we had established the Mandarin had thrown his attache case. Well, why don't we ever call it a briefcase? It's not a briefcase. It's an attache case. Can't you tell the difference between a briefcase and an attache case? Is there any difference? <laughs> I have no idea what the difference is between a briefcase and an attache case, but it's almost always described as an attache case. At one point, Jeff and I were watching a movie from the 70s, and we're like, now that briefcase, that classic 1970s briefcase, do they still sell that? Like, can you go, <laughs> can you go to Amazon and buy that briefcase? And then we looked it up, and it's like, <laughs> well, the first thing Google said is, do you want to go to briefcase.com? And I said, you bet I do. And uh, uh, briefcase.com sells classic briefcases. And of course, then all my ads were for briefcase.com for a while after that. But uh, I never actually bought myself one. (laughs) That's why you go in incognito mode whenever you're doing stuff like that. So we then get basically the scene that we have on the cover of Ultimo fighting these Chinese soldiers. Is that well? And just to remind people, the Mandarin is in China, but he considers himself to be essentially above and more important than the communist Chinese government. And so he is content to work with them from time to time when it suits his needs. But at this point, he is going ahead and wrecking havoc upon them. Another place where Stan Lee seems to uh, try to desperately imply that people who clearly just were crushed in a horribly brutal way did not die on the bottom of page 10 uh, when Ultimo lifts up a rock on which is a bunch of the Chinese soldiers and then he smashes it back down and apparently they quote retreated between panels and this is just a paroxysm of uncontrollable rage for him to be smashing it down I'm like dude those people are pulp yeah Iron Man is back in action at this point he's coming and fighting Ultimo it's an exciting but pretty generic fight Uh, And then we just see that halfway around the world in the USA, Senator Byrd has, because Tony Stark and Iron Man are both refusing his subpoenas, that they are going to shut down Stark Industries until further notice. And we see a shot of an employee showing up at work, uh, or maybe just having been shut out of work with a sign saying Stark Industries closed until further notice. Uh, And once again, reiterating that it's not just that the millionaire's uh, income is being disrupted, but also that regular everyday working Joes are being hurt by this as well. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Uh, we're we're left mid-battle, and we will get to the rest of it next issue. Overall, okay. We've had better, we've had worse uh, Iron Man issues. Uh, the art is is uh, pretty good. As I said, I'm happier with the colon page layouts than I have been lately. Uh, and yeah, he and uh, Jack Abel are working quite nicely together at this point. 
It's very nice. But storyline wise, it's, you know, we, we've seen better from the Mandarin. Yeah, I like the Mandarin just fine. I like, you know, I think Mandarin is a good villain. I think that Ultimo, I like a lot. Ultimo is a nice, uh, threatening looking guy. I like page seven where Tony Stark is running through the palace and has to jump into the moat. It's very dynamic. I think this is a nice issue, a perfectly fine story and nice art by Colin and Abel. Colin always does a fantastic job on castles. He loves castles. That's why his most famous comics run was Dracula, who had a castle. I did worry that uh, just in one panel on the middle of page three that the Mandarin looked a little buck-toothed, unfortunately. Other than that, they do a pretty good job with him. Yeah, and with details like that, you never know who to uh, ascribe that to. Is that Colin or is that Colin's famously difficult-to-ink pencils and Abel made that choice? Yeah. And who knows? And yeah, I I see what you mean. And I think I had noticed that when I went through it originally. Uh, And I don't think this is the only place I saw that. I think I noticed a few different places where we saw a little bit of a bucktooth look that uh you know did look like it could very well be able or you know colon uh bottom of page five page five panel four is another one with that mm-hmm. all right yeah so let's move on to capitan america if a hostage should die at last mighty marvel reveals for the first time the never told before saga of the girl from cap's past but no name <laughs> so oh, no like it's like there we're finally going to tell you everything except for her name, which is going to be we are going. I, at what point is the name Peggy Carter finally said? Is it ever even said in Lee's run on the book? I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, I think we find Sharon Carter's name before we get Peggy Carter's name, right? Yeah, I would assume so. Yeah. Uh, so script Stanley layouts Jack Kirby, penciling John Romita, inking Frank Ray, lettering Sam Rosen, kibitzing Irving Forbush. What is the deal with Ir- Irving Forbush? Do you I have no mean, idea. He's just an imaginary character that they have out there. Anyway. <laughs> Marvel's version of Alfred E. Newman. I guess so. So I love the art of this issue. I think that Kirby, Ramita, and Ray is sometimes when you have three artists, even if they're great artists, by the time you have three artists in one issue, they fall over each other and don't do a good job. But I think the art in this issue is spectacular. I think that Kirby, Ramita, and Ray are working wonderfully well together. Yes, the three of them are all excellent artists, and each one of them is able to either interpret things the way they were supposed to be interpreted or reinterpret them in a different way that totally makes sense and works. It is often a complaint of mine when we have that uh, split up into three separate jobs, but uh, I think it turns out quite well here. Yeah. So we begin with Steve Rogers watching TV at night, and there is uh, some old documentary footage of him helping to liberate Paris. Uh, And it's clear that everybody is joyous in this after he defeats the Nazis, uh, except Cap. The Cap looks almost panicked, and nobody knows why. Uh, But of course, Steve Rogers knows why. He goes over and finds a portrait that he has, apparently, of the woman who will eventually be named Peggy Carter. How he has a portrait of her when she never even saw him with his mask off, and they were, like, fighting fighting with the resistance in the final few weeks of the war in France uh, I is not explained, but uh, okay, well, sure. Of course, it's hard to tell in a comic book uh, that is pencil linked whether or not something is supposed to be a pencil sketch or supposed to be a photograph. That's right. Of course, Steve is a great artist. 
So Steve could have always penciled and inked this himself. Yes. Uh, and as you've been talking about, you know, you've been saying, oh, no, she would be an old hag. That's why I haven't looked her up. Well, uh, they kind of explained some of that in this issue. Uh, on yes. page two, at one point, he's thinking, I never knew for certain whether she had been killed. It's been more than 20 years since then. If she were alive, surely she'd have found me by now. And it's established that he didn't actually know her name, I believe. Right. Or she didn't know his name. Did he know her name? Because he never asked, it's unclear why he would yeah. not have known her name. Like, if you want to know somebody's name, I realize once you've been introduced to them three times and you don't remember their name, it just gets more and more awkward. And then you're like, uh, hi, you. But, uh, <laughs> but which, which is which is precisely why I started in college introducing myself and telling people I will need to ask your name seven times just to have a very specific and large number. And usually by the time I got to the fifth time, they're like, you weren't joking, were you? I'm like, why would I be joking about that? Yes. I I was at a party last night with various people who I've been introduced to in the past and did not remember the names of. So on page three, as Steve Rogers steps away from the documentary and out on a balcony as storm clouds are coming in and there's lightning and thunder. And we have what today we would definitely diagnose as PTSD here. The caption says, Then, as the heavy-hearted Steve Rogers stares into the blackness of space, the sounds of thunder seem to bring back the roar of cannon to his anguished ears as he does return to that fateful day through the magic of his memory. And then we see him staring out into the clouds, and you can see the lightning, but you also see that there is a you know, some kind of a field gun that is sort of floating in space. And in that area, the clouds look almost like they could be a cloud of smoke from the muzzle of the gun. And that gun blast is sort of merging into one of the lightning bolts there. These days, we would definitely recognize that as, I mean, that's PTSD. That's one of the reasons why some people argue that we shouldn't be doing fireworks, because it brings back this kind of PTSD to soldiers, which I would miss. I I really like fireworks, but but, you know. But also, you have sometimes people going like, you know, also because of soldiers and also because of dogs who get very upset by fireworks, they're going like, we should have silent fireworks that, you know, like, look, we all love the pretty colors, but we don't need the sound. Let's go and do silent fireworks, which uh, there's, I don't think are ever going to catch on, but that's, uh, there's been a push <laughs> toward that. That, that. that seems like it would be kind of eerie. Yeah, it would be really weird. It, it, it would all be, it would be like, have I gone deaf? And then also it would look sort of more like a signal flare. You know? yeah. So it's like, wow, are a whole bunch of ships you know, just drifting at sea? What's going on? Anyway, I find that really interesting to see this very clear description of what we now call PTSD. What in past years has been called shell shock and then later battle fatigue, which I think was probably the term for it at this point. But uh, really, I think they would only recognize it as such and do anything about it if it was really entirely debilitating to you. Other than that, it's just like, look, man, we were all at war. We just all need to get over it. So anyway, his mind goes back to that operation that the documentary was about, and we see him kicking a ton of Nazi ass in a way that is always awesome. We always love to see uh, Captain America kicking Nazi ass. Now, <laughs> uh, and we see the woman who will one be one day be named Peggy Carter. Captain America is saying to her as they're sort of in a half embrace, you've got to leave the partisans. This isn't woman's work. And she explains to him, I can't leave. This is war. It's everybody's war. 
I'm needed. I answered the call just as you did. And he, re- he says, well, I know I haven't the right to speak to you this way. It's just that you've come to mean so much to me. So apparently he has been embedded with her resistance group for like two or three weeks and has never taken off his mask around any of them. <laughs> I'm like, man, that mask must be getting smelly and itchy in there by yeah. now. Uh, it's like taking a cast off after, you know, several weeks and you have all that skin that flakes out. <laughs> all right. So. They split up Peggy and Cap as the operation continues. She ends up getting captured and interrogated, presumably tortured. And on page six, panel four, one, two, sorry, panel five, uh, we see her looking a little bit worse for wear. However, by the time we get to panel seven, uh, she's already looking a little bit better. And by the time we get to the next page, she's looking like she's definitely had time to go to the salon or at least <laughs> put on all her makeup. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it's it's amazing how, uh, how that can happen, you know, uh, when you're a prisoner of war. So she's being taken out to be executed as the Nazis are retreating. So they're like, we're retreating. We will not leave these people whom we captured uh, to rejoin these folks. Even though we know we're losing, we're going to murder as many people as we can on the way out. So she's about to be liquidated. Then there's an explosion as part of the Allied forces coming in and breaking up this Nazi stronghold. And Cap learns that she had been in the firing squad grounds uh, when this bomb went off and nobody can find her. And that's why he was panicking in that documentary. But in the end, he has to go along with it. He's like, I can't be like, no, Get away from me, people, as they're all trying to carry him off on their shoulders. So he goes along with it. And we see in the background that Peggy Carter is still alive, but the blast has given her amnesia. Amnesia. So uh, she has no idea who she is or anything. So that's why even if she's still alive, she has never come to find him. I really like the central concept of this issue of you begin watching silent documentary footage and they're like, oh, look how heroic Cap America is in this documentary footage. And Cap America is like, you have no idea what was going through my mind, dude. I was not in a good place. And then we we find out from his flashback what he was actually going through. And I really like that central conceit for this issue. Yeah. That that's a moving story. It's, it's irony. Irony is the heartful meaning, I say in my books. And we have a very ironic story here where, ironically, this heroic footage did not feel at all heroic on the day. I think that's a common irony in war, and it's a good engine for this story. Yeah, uh, just like I'm sure that the uh, Marines who lifted the flag at Iwo Jima did not necessarily feel particularly heroic at the time, especially since, as the story goes, those men who actually held it up in the first place died. Um, You know, so uh, at least as the story goes. So um, a couple of observations about this. Yes. Well, first of all, I agree with you uh, on all of that. I think this is a surprisingly sophisticated story, uh, largely for dealing with PTSD in a way that seems much more modern than uh, I would expect uh, at this point in time. At one point when uh, Cap is kicking a bunch of Nazi ass, uh, someone says, Himmel, it is Captain America! Or sorry, that's the wrong R. What's the German R? Anyway, so uh, Cap says, you can say that again, 
Otto, the sooner we get this over with, the sooner you can go home to your pig's knuckles and sauerkraut. And I'm like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to insult Nazis about without talking about their taste in pork products and fermented cabbage. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, Cap is kicking Nazi ass, so I'm going to uh, give him a lot of leeway on that. Also, so here's the other thing that got me. Remember a couple of issues ago when... Steve Rogers first bumped into the woman who will eventually be named Sharon Carter, and they both seemed to recognize each other. And then as they split up and she's walking away, she says, I almost made a fool of myself. Sis had told me so often of the boy she knew in World War II, not Captain America, the boy she knew in World War II, but he'd be much older by now. It couldn't have been him. What would he have thought if I asked, is your name Steve Rogers? But yes, but here, seemingly, Peggy Carter never knew his name was Steve Rogers and never saw him without his mask on. So it doesn't make any sense. No, that is uh, that that is a no prize waiting to happen if someone can come up with a way to explain that. <laughs> yes, but I do like how in this issue they imply for the first time that if he could find her, that he would still love her, even though she would be in her 40s and he would be in his 20s. As someone who is married to a 40 something woman, <laughs> I was glad to have some indication that that might not be a death sentence. Matt, and, I hate uh, to break it to you, but you are not still in your 20s. I, I'm aware of that. I was very glad to have some indication that maybe he he would still like to be with her. Yes. Uh, so so would you like to apologize to him for you ragging on him all these months about <laughs> not bothering to find her because she would be a wretched old hag? Yes, I issue an apology. Okay. I'm sure he will not accept it. All right. So I believe we are done with that. Uh, As I said, serviceable Iron Man story with quite good art and then a very good Captain America story with very good art. And it's really nice that they're finally figuring out the formula that will work for Captain America going forward for the rest of the 60s. Not just him moping about things, but him having some specifics uh, to be uh, wistful for or sad about or, you know, angry about rather than just Bucky. Oh, Bucky. Bucky, Bucky, Bucky. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, it's it's uh, I I think this issue was well worth our 12 cents. It is. uh, But but it does continue to annoy me that the Carters are never named. I'm, uh, I'm like, just just give them names. But uh, they, uh, I don't know why. I don't know why neither Carter is ever named when they appear. So, all right, let's go ahead and jump on to our final book of the month, Avengers number 28. Back at last, Giant Man, Among Us Walks a Goliath. So there's already some confusion on the cover as to what his name is. We see Giant Man a.k.a. Goliath, standing tall behind the other four Avengers. I think the Wasp also officially rejoins this issue, but she is not mentioned and not named on the cover. So we jump into the issue. We have Cap's kooky quartet sitting around once again in a Avengers mansion that just is becomes more and more gadget-filled every issue. Brilliantly conceived by Stan Lee writer, cleverly perpetrated by Don Heck Penciler, daringly executed by Frankie Ray Inker, stoically buried by Artie Simon Letterer. Uh, you know, Frankie Ray... Frank Giacoya, I like a lot, and he is doing a pretty good job over Don Heck. As always with Heck, Scarlet Witch's waist on the first page is just comically tiny, smaller than either of her breasts. I never like Heck's tiny, tiny waist, 
the Avengers then get a call from Henry Pym and they're like, oh, we don't know who you are, Henry Pym. He's like, yeah, you do. I'm Giant Man. All right, fine. I'll go ahead and reveal my secret identity. And they're like, what? Henry Pym is Giant Man? Like, dude, it was so obvious that Henry Pym was Giant Man. <laughs> but uh, they somehow never were able to figure it out. Giant Man's fan club kept on showing up to Henry Pym's lab space. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, people. <laughs> Very good point. Uh, so then, <laughs> meanwhile, the wasp has. Uh, so the giant man says, "You dudes have to help me find the wasp." Um, we then cut to the wasp, who is a prisoner of one of my favorite characters, who makes his first appearance here, the Collector. I have always had a deep and abiding love for the Elders of the Universe, a name that will eventually be given to various Marvel characters who were not really connected when they first appeared, but will eventually be grouped together into a huge and fun mythology. I am a huge fan of Steve Englehart's run on Silver Surfer, where the Elders will play a major role, and then uh, Jim Sterling's subsequent run on Silver Surfer, where the original Infinity Gauntlet quest, when Thanos was going around collecting the soul gems, when Thanos was going around collecting the Infinity Gems, he was not collecting them from the people he collected them from in the movie Infinity War. He was collecting them from the Elders of the Universe, Elders of the Galaxy. What are they called? Elders of the I think the Elders something. of the Universe. Elders of the Universe. And Elders in the universe. Uh, in the MCU, the Collector is played by Benicio Del Toro, and he did an interesting and fun interpretation. Uh, but before yes. we go on, I've got another uh, another thing I want to point out. When they say, oh, she escaped from a Tuma, but since then she's been missing – and this, the footnote says, we thrilled to Jan's escape together in Avengers 26, right? Right, Stan, the footnote kid. No, we did not. <laughs> we did not. She was captured by Atuma. The Avengers showed up and were captured by Atuma as well. We did not see, hear, or have any mention of Jan after she made the radio call for help. Yes. Not at all. I'm wondering whether Stan realized that here, and that's why he's like, we all remember that, right? Right. <laughs> Stan is trying to gaslight us into thinking yes. that he wrote that scene when, in fact, he did not. Indeed. Bizarrely, the collector, it's like, oh, he's collecting mutations, or he's collecting mutants, or he's collecting something, and he also collected the beetle, who... Why is the Beetle keep showing up in Avengers comics? There is nothing collectible about the Beetle. Nobody who is collecting any sort of special thing would feel like adding the Beetle to his collection. So then the Avengers and Henry Pym, they get together and Henry Pym's like, well, okay, I am Henry Pym. I was Giant Man, but I stopped doing it because it was like killing me to change size. And they're like, oh, yeah, prove it, change size. And he's like, well, it's like killing me. It's really bad. And they're like, oh, sure, Mr. Wire. And he's like, okay, I'll change size. And uh, becomes really giant and then becomes small again. And then he is coming to join them as he's got a new outfit. Scarlet Witch had just made him a new outfit. Like, oh, yes. not knowing he was ever going to return. She's never even served in the Avengers with him before. Yes. And, but she's like, wait, you have no costume. I've never told anyone, but I've been sewing a new outfit in case you ever did return. I'll get it. I made it of the special stretch fabric you had left behind months ago. Um, <laughs> of course, if there's an outfit, then it had to be the woman that sewed it. And Except for Peter Parker. 
Yes, true. Peter Parker, uh, <laughs> remarkably uh, gender forward in his sewing abilities. Oh, but, and, uh, uh, and Daredevil for that matter. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think they say. actually said that in the first issue, something about, didn't outfit. they? I don't know. Anyway. But uh, if there's a group, then uh, the woman has to make the outfits, even though yes. she, as you point out, she had absolutely no reason to do so. And um, <laughs> at some point here, they rename him from, yes, I guess on page six, they rename him from Giant Man to Goliath. I'm not sure why they would feel the need to do that, but they do. I guess they feel like Goliath himself even says Giant Man always sounded rather corny to me. I'm not sure about that. But then they go ahead and they go to the collector's mansion. And he quickly takes him prisoner, kind of a cool trap they're in of a crooked hallway that then shifts and becomes individual cells. They fight the collector for several pages. For no reason, the beetle is there uh, with his powers that are in no way beetle-like. So one thing you did not mention earlier is with Goliath, when he finally did change size to show them that he was Goliath, he said that he can only turn to one size these days 25 feet he cannot get larger or smaller than that uh, other than human size those are the only two sizes he's got and that he can't change back or forth for at least 15 minutes yes he has to be remain in one size for at least 15 minutes so now at this point he is squeezing to get through the halls of this uh castle where the collector is i feel like the only time that giant man has ever really worked for me as a character was on the Avengers Earth Minus Heroes cartoon show, where he was constantly shifting size in battle in a way that really made him seem like an effective character. Even in the MCU, I've never really felt like either Scott Lang or Henry Pym seemed like an effective fighter, like was effectively using powers in a way to be a good fighter in the way he was in Earth Minus Heroes. So then the Beatle shows up having defeated Captain America, which seems a little... <laughs> like, okay, you're kind of punching above your weight class there, uh, Beetle. And, and you would think uh, you'd think the Beetle would be a little bit more stoked than he is. He just seems, yeah. oh, here's Captain America. The other two are trapped behind a ton of rock. Should be like, dude, can you believe it? I actually got Captain America, dude. Yeah. Oh, also on the same page, we find out that we we established from the very first appearance of Henry Pym that he knows judo way back from the man in the anthill story. Uh, we find out here he also has now learned karate. And yes, they, he mentions both judo and karate. A knowledge of judo and karate can come in mighty handy, too. The only thing left is for him to explain that, oh, yes, I've been traveling in Thailand where I learned judo and karate or something where, uh, something <laughs> where you've, you've always got to mix up the martial arts with what country they're from. So yes. then they finally defeat Collector. Collector uses the time machine to get away. And I, does the beetle, I guess the beetle hops in with him. And uh, it's like, uh, I'd better get out of here, too. So then they get away. The wasp was, of course, no good to anybody. She is rescued and freed. And then Goliath tries to shrink back to normal size, but gets stuck at 10 feet. And he will be stuck at 10 feet for the next 20 or so issues of this book. And it never works. It is absolutely crazy. Every single issue of The Avengers from now on, there will be something going like, he wouldn't be able to do that at 10 feet tall or... That doorway wouldn't have been that size for him. That seat in that jet would not have been that size for him unless he has Tony Stark just constantly remaking everything in his world for a 10-foot tall guy. Makes no sense. And he never seems like he's going to be a very effective member of the team. It's just like 10-foot tall man. 
<laughs> I do not understand. You know, it's good. I was certainly tired of just having these same four members of the Avengers every issue. And I love having the Wasp back. But having Henry Pym back, no matter what game, name he goes by, the character is still just not working for me. And this sort of tragically, he's always 10 feet, never works for me. But I love the collector. I'm very glad to have him added to the Marvel Universe. I uh, don't love the Beetle and have no idea why he is in this issue, but I am willing to forgive everything about this issue because we get the collector who will eventually be played by Patricio del Toro. So it's funny, in the MCU, we have Patricio del Toro's collector, who they do some good stuff with, and we have Jeff Goldblum as the Grandmaster, who they do good stuff with, but the two are never associated with each other. And for that matter, Ego was also one of the elders of the universe. Oh, was he? I have said my piece about this issue. Do you have anything to add? Yeah, I have a few more things. Uh, I think that this would have made a lot more sense if Stan Lee had said something about uh, Jan disappeared from the sub and we don't know why and found out because she was in a little jar. Remember, a little glass yes. jar and just said that, oh, well, the collector somehow through his cosmic powers was able to pluck her from the ship and now has her uh, still not a not a great solution, but would have been better than just being like, oh, yeah, no, no, we, we all saw her get away. Yep. Yep, we did. Hey, sure. Then on page 12, in a confrontation between the Beetle and the um, Avengers here. So yes. on the first panel, Captain America is knocked off of a ledge. And it's unclear on the next panel, panel two, where that ledge was. All we see is a wall there. So he's falling down head first uh, backwards. And Cap says, Hawkeye, maneuver nine, fast. And Hawkeye shoots an arrow with a wire. And it looks like, I guess, that Captain America is supposed to just catch the wire. But at this point, it looks like Hawkeye is firing the, the uh, arrow downwards when he was at ground level. And <laughs> it's just like, yeah, uh, Cap is still like, what? I, you know, this is just one of those things where, like I said, I really liked Don Heck's work uh, early on, but I just don't think he's got the knack of doing fight scenes in team books. There's just stuff like this where it's like, I have no clue what just happened. There. I was giving this more of a benefit of doubt, and I was reading this going like, oh, OK, Cap gets knocked off of something and he's falling. And yeah, it, when you actually go back and look at it, like, what was he getting knocked off of? How is this going to help him? Uh, it, it Terrible storytelling by Don Heck. Yeah, so let's see. Anything else I had here? Yeah, so when uh, Goliath arrives to join the fray on page 14, that is not the first panel. That is not a good drawing no. of <laughs> Goliath running. He just looks like he should be toppling straight over. <laughs> uh, I'm like, you know, once again, not suited to Don Heck's strengths here. And his head looks like it could easily fit inside either of his hands. Well, I mean, that could be forced perspective. I'm going to, I'm, I, right don't have as much of a problem with that one. I guess the last thing I want to say is that the way that Frank Giacoya inked the shadows on Goliath's goggles is something that will then be carried forward forever. 
right? And it's probably just an odd choice that he made. Uh, and what it is is just a bunch of feathered lines going from top to bottom, sort of angling outward as you get to the outside of the goggles. And it looks pretty cool. And you will not have other people rendering those goggles differently with like, you know, a highlight and shadows and reflections and stuff like that. Nope, this is the way it's going to be forever. Eh, At least it looks cool. Yep, I like it. And yeah, you're right. It's going to become permanent. Yep. All right. So uh, I believe that is all I have to say about this month. Uh, Overall, quite a good month of comics. Yeah, overall, there were some weaker issues, including shockingly Dicko Doctor Strange, but I, I don't know. It wasn't a tremendously strong month of comics. You know, Dicko Spider-Man wasn't a classic. Dicko Doctor Strange was not a classic. Fantastic Four, hardcore classic. Captain America, absolutely fantastic issue. But the only two Thor? great comics is... Okay, that was a great Thor. Yeah. <laughs> That was yeah. a pretty great tour. That- I, I would say overall, yes, we had some, I, I don't know if we'd quite say duds, but some that were on the bottom part of the scale. But uh, I think that for the most part, uh, the average is higher this month than it often is. Yeah, I wouldn't say that just because I think that usually, <laughs> usually Spider-Man and Doctor Strange carry so much of the, are often the two best books of the month. For weaker months for both of those, I would say the average is dipped. But still, lots of great books this month. I can't yes. complain about this month, especially Fantastic Four, Thor, and Captain America. All right. Anything else you have to say to uh, our listeners in America and around the world uh, before we sign off? Uh, we have some great guests coming up. Uh, we look forward to having you soon, but it was fun to have an episode with just the two of us but we will have other exciting things happening soon. We will see you soon, America. Uh, yeah, and we yeah. so we might have special guests for possibly the next three months of comics in a row, but we will, uh, we will see about that. Um, yeah, thanks a lot, my sisters, brothers, and others. Uh, stay safe out there. Okay, bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarbleRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.